I think people see the output of models like you know, Dolly, GPT-3, et cetera, and they're amazed by what AI can do. And so the conversation doesn't even hinge on like, we have access to this data set or we have access to this talent pool. It's more AI is magical. What can we do with it? And again, I think that is somewhat dangerous. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show about machine learning in the real world. And I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. Sarah Catanzaro was a practicing data scientist and then went into venture. She's currently a general partner at Amplify Partners and one of the leading investors in AI and ML. Her investments include a whole bunch of companies I admire like Runway ML, OctoML, Gantry, and others. It's really interesting to talk to an investor who's also technical. She has insights both on how the technology is built and how it's being adopted by the market at large. This is a really fun conversation and I hope you enjoy it. Sarah, thanks so much for doing this. I've been looking forward to this one. I had a bunch of questions prepped and then I was looking at your Twitter and I was like, ooh, there's like a whole bunch of other <laughs> stuff that we should uh... <laughs> um. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I feel like I've 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 been doing a lot of like thinking out loud recently, um, including in response to like a lot of the hype around you know, stable diffusion, LLMs, et cetera. Um, I appreciate the fact that like both of us were there in the like 2013, 2014 phase where like every company was claiming to be an AI company and it feels like we're kind of like heading down that road again, which like scares me a little bit um and i hope at least like there are enough like companies people who like remember the lessons of of like the last ai renaissance um but we'll see well let's get right into it then because i'll say from from my perspective you know i totally remember like at least one other ai bubble maybe more depending on how you count it but I guess from where I sit, it feels like this one um, might be different in the sense that I feel like these these challenges that were always, you know, seemed like super, super hard, like seem like they're really working. And I feel like I see um, like applications happening like unbelievably fast after the, the paper comes out, actually, even maybe before there's like time to even publish any um, paper on the topic. So I think I might be more bullish about, um, you know, large language models and stable diffusion uh, than you, which is great because we can actually have a, an interesting conversation here. But, um, you know, I, I, I thought it's interesting, like, you know, you've invested in um, Runway and mm-hmm. just the other day, Chris was showing me like a natural language, um, you know, input into Runway where you could basically type what you want and it would um, it would sort of like set up the video editing um, to work that way. And I thought, oh, my gosh, like this might be a totally new kind of interface that, um, you know, lots of software might might quickly adopt, I guess. Um, but it sounds like, you know, looking at your Twitter, it sounds like you were playing with large language models and finding it super frustrating and, and broken. T- tell me about that. Yeah. So, so I think like my concern is less about like the capabilities of large language models specifically and more about like some of the lessons that we learned during, you know, the last uh ai renaissance um which i think was like roughly like 2014 to like maybe 2017 around the time that like AlphaGo came out um uh people were really excited about like the capabilities of like gans and rl um 
And at the time, I remember, you know, companies like Airbnb, Uber, Lyft, like building these big research teams, but not really having like a clear agenda for those research teams or understanding like how the objectives of their research teams might align with like the uh, objectives of, of like the broader organization. And then similarly, you saw all of these you know, startup founders emerge that were talking about like, uh, you know, changing healthcare with GANs or like changing finance with RL, but didn't really have like insights into the like nuances of, of those industries. And so like my feeling of why ML didn't work the last time around, or rather like why ML adoption didn't occur at the pace that we anticipated was that it was not really like a technical problem, but rather uh, like product go to market problem. Um, I am hoping that, you know, this time around, like we've both learned from our mistakes, but also that in the intervening time period uh, created enough like enabling technologies um, uh, such that like two things can occur. Uh, one is that like companies can fail fast. Uh, frankly, like one of the things that scares me is that like back then I remember like a bunch of companies reaching out and basically saying things like, uh, hey, like we've got a bunch of data. Like we'd love for you to come in and talk to us about our AI strategy and thinking like, I don't care if you have a bunch of data. Let's talk about like a bunch of problems that you have and how, you know, ML can solve those problems. Um, I've come to believe that like you can't fight that urge that like founders will always be enticed by like the promise of AI. But if they're able to like experiment with it quickly, um, then I think they can start to learn more about like the infrastructure and data and other investments that they may need to make in order for their AI initiatives to be successful. Um, at you know the same time, I think uh, by creating like these higher level interfaces that make ML more accessible to like potentially like the domain expert, um, it allows people with a more thorough understanding of uh, business problems to at least like prototype AI solutions. Like I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical that like these very high level interfaces will allow them to kind of like build uh, production ML at scale, but at least they can see like, does it work? And do I need to now like hire a data ML team to like realize this initiative further? Do you have companies in mind that you like that are kind of creating these higher level interfaces off of um, ML technology that 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 makes them usable for real world applications? Yeah. So I mean, I think like Runway is actually a perfect example of like the phenomena that I see playing out. Uh, some people may not know, but like Runway actually kind of started off more as like a model marketplace. Uh, their goal had been to like make GANs and other types of models accessible to creative professionals, but they weren't uh, really focused on on uh, building out uh, the video editing tools, at least initially. Uh, so they created these higher level interfaces such that like various creative professionals, whether it was you know artists or or uh, uh, directors or you know photographers could could start to like experiment with ML models. 
Um, and what they saw was that, you know, some of the most popular models were uh, models that automated routine tasks associated with video editing. And so like based on that user behavior, they decided to double down on video editing. And in fact, like a lot of the model architectures that they've since created, including stable diffusion, were really like purpose built to support the workflows of video editors. Uh, so, so like, I like that sort of workflow where you use a, a prototype or like you use these higher level interfaces to get insight into what users need, as well as like potentially the limitations of the underlying technology. And then you iterate from there. So I, I totally remember a time, I think of the era you're talking about, uh, 2014 to 2017, when, um, you know, every company was like, oh, we have this data, like it must be valuable because we can, you know, build a model on top of it. Do you see some analogy today to that? Like what what is the, what, what's the common like request of like a ML team that that's, you know, misguided or, or should be thinking more about problems? Because I feel like data maybe isn't seeming quite as valuable in a, in a world of um, LLMs and, and big models. Yeah, yeah. So I think like what, what we're seeing today is arguably like more nefarious than, than uh, what uh, we saw back then, because at least at that point in time, you know, companies had invested in collecting data. They had thought about possibly like what data to collect. And so there was some understanding of like how to work with data. I think people see the output of models like you know, Dolly, GPT-3, et cetera, and they're amazed by what AI can do. And so the conversation doesn't even hinge on like, we have access to this data set or we have access to this talent pool or we have this type of workflow um, that could benefit from uh, these like generative capabilities. It's, it's more AI is magical. What can we do with it? Uh, come in and talk to us about this. And again, I think you know that is that is somewhat dangerous. I was I was at a uh, conference just last week, and there was a presentation on uh, ML infrastructure at, at like a uh, music company. And somebody in the audience asked, like, does the AI listen to songs? Um, and, you know, it's a perfectly, like, reasonable question. But I think it does kind of belie some of the misunderstanding of AI and how it works. I guess in, in, what, in what sense? I think people think about AI as, like, artificial agents. Uh, they think of AI as something that could listen to a song not just something that could like represent a song um, and make like predictions based upon uh, the content of that song. Um, so uh, again, I think like better understanding what uh, LLMs are and what they can do um, will be really necessary like to identify when they can be useful. Yeah. This might sound, this is like a little bit of a softball or might sound like a softball, but I was like really genuinely interested in this. I feel like one of the things that you do really well, at least in my, you know, conversations with you is is kind of maintain a pretty deep technical and current knowledge of, 
of what's going on in, in like data stacks, basically, or like data infrastructure and ML infrastructure. But yet, you know, you're not like maintaining data infrastructure as far as I know. And so I'm kind of curious how um, you stay on top of a field that re- like seems like it requires such like hands-on engagement to to understand it well, or at least I feel like it does for me. Um, yeah, just curious what your what your process is. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's interesting because I'd, I'd say that like in some ways that is one of my biggest concerns. Um, I've been in venture now for about seven years. And so I can still say that like I spent most of my career in data, um, but it won't be long before like that is no longer true. Um, and certainly I have found that like my uh, practical technical skills have gotten rustier. Um, one comment on that is that I do think that like losing my Python SQL skills, et cetera, has actually enabled me to like look at some of the like tools and platforms uh, that are available to users today with like a fresh set of eyes. I'm not as like entrenched in the same uh, patterns of behavior and workflows as I was when I was a practitioner. So, so it's been like uh, helpful to like shed some of my biases. But I think what I've discovered is that like you can understand how something works without using it. And, and therefore, like there are two things that are kind of like critical to uh, building a technical understanding for me. One is just spending a lot of time with practitioners and hearing about like their experiences, how they're using various tools, how they're thinking about like uh, various sets of technologies. And frankly, like just learning from them, it almost feels like a shortcut. Like, hey, instead of instead of like trying to figure out uh, what the difference is between like automated prompting and like prefix tuning, just going to ask somebody. Uh, and have a conversation with them and which is kind of like coincidental and perhaps even ironic um and accelerate my learning by just learning from people with expertise in those areas um uh, so so there's a lot that like i just learned through conversation with practitioners um but i think like going one level deeper um either like reading white papers or reading uh, research papers uh, that give you kind of a high level overview of an architecture or how something works without getting into like the nitty gritty of the underlying like code or math um, allows me to kind of like reason about these components at a, a practical level of abstraction. Like I, I can see how things fit together I understand how they work. That doesn't necessarily mean that I'd be able to implement them. Definitely doesn't mean that I'd be able to iterate on them, but it's like enough depth uh, to reason about like a component and its place in a broader technical stack. It's funny though, sometimes I feel like investors, I mean, all investors do that to some extent and I totally get why, but I think that I often feel also paranoid about like losing my technical skills because I feel like if all you can do is sort of like figure out what box something belongs to, 
it's really hard for you to evaluate the things that don't fit into boxes. And I feel like almost all the interesting advances, actually all the products that you know we want to come out with that weights and biases, generally is stuff where it's like doesn't fit neatly into one of those like ML workflow you know diagrams that that people make. Because like if it was one of those boxes, then you know of course people are doing it because it you know it makes logical sense. But it's sort of when that stuff gets reshuffled, and it does seem like you're able to maintain a much greater level of technical depth than the average. Um, yeah, the average investor, even in the in the data space, which is why I wanted to have you on this podcast. I hope I'm not offending any of my current investors. I just caveat there. You all are wonderful. But um, I really do feel like you somehow um, maintained a much greater technical depth than most of your your colleagues. So, so it, in many ways, like I'm amazed by my colleagues and and like what they do, because I think there are many investors that can reason about like the growth of companies and reason about like sets of boxes and the relationships between those boxes uh, without understanding what those boxes do. Um, I don't think I could do that, but I've always also just been the type of person who like needs to go a little bit deeper. Um, as an example, like, I uh, you know started my career in data science, but I'd amplify like I also invest in databases. And at some point, though, know, like writing uh, SQL queries, working with data frames, like I just wanted to better understand like what was happening. Like when I write a SQL query and data shows up in my SQL workbench, like what is happening on my computer? Um, I think like a lot of people kind of take that stuff for granted and they can like that is the beauty of abstractions that is the beauty of technology like we are able to have this video conference we are able to connect over the internet without understanding how the internet works um but like my personality is as such that like i want to understand how the internet works i want to understand like why I have service in some places and why I don't have service and and like why my data frame is slower than my like SQL query. Um, and I do think that that makes me think about like technical systems and in uh, different ways. That's funny. My co-founder Sean is obsessed with um, in technical interviews, like assessing if someone understand how, understands how the computer works in his words, which I think is really interesting because I feel like I'm actually not like that that's kind of like a weakness of mine. Like I always wonder like about a lot of the details there, but it is sort of an interesting, um, you know, perspective. That, like, you know, I, I love working with all of my colleagues because they have that same, you know, drive to understand how every, you know, how everything works. Um, okay. Here's another question that I was, I was wondering, I was thinking about if I were to come to you and, and I had like a company in the, in the data ML space and I had a bunch of, um, customers that were like really who we think of as like tech forward, like say like Airbnb and Google and yeah, I don't know that, that genre, would that be more impressive or you, would you be more thinking I'm likely to succeed than if I came to you at the set of customers who we don't normally think of as tech forward, like say like an insurance company, like a large insurance company and a large, like, you know, pharma company, like which, which would you, um, look at and say, Ooh, that, that, that seems like that company is going to succeed. Cause like part of me sort of like watches technology sort of flow, you know, from the more tech forward companies everywhere. 
But another part of me is like, wow, you know, these these kind of less tech forward companies have a whole set of different needs and often like a different tech stack. And certainly there's more of them and they have more budget um, for this stuff. So so which which would be the more impressive pitch for you? Yeah, yeah. No, it's funny because I think like in many ways, like uh, the way that like VCs make decisions, the way that like we think about deals is actually like super similar to some of the patterns that we observe with like uh, neural networks. <laughs> um, and that of course means that like we have bias. It also means that like we learn from patterns that you know, we've observed. Um, so I can give you the honest answer and then I can also give you the rational answer. The honest answer is that I would be more impressed by a company that has engaged with uh, tech forward customers uh, for the reasons that you described. Like in the past, we have generally seen that like tech will spread from the Airbnbs and Ubers and you know, fangs of the world into the enterprise and not the other way around. Um, we also have a bias that like these more traditional enterprises tend to move slower. Uh, there tends to be like a lot of bureaucratic red tape that you need to navigate. Uh, and like as such, those markets tend to be like less attractive. Um, so on its face, like if you just said you don't have any additional information about like the velocity of sales about like the quality of the tech or team, et cetera. But like or here hold, to equivalent companies. Yeah, equivalent. Yeah. 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 Um, but that said, I think like that is one of the biases that uh, can uh, cause us to make poor decisions. Uh, what really matters are some of the things that I just alluded to. Like if you're able to sell into insurance companies repeatedly and uh, with, you know, high velocity, like that is arguably like a better business than a company that spends six to 12 months trying to sell into tech companies. Um, so so it's, it's less about like to whom do you sell and more about like, is that a big market? Are you able to sell you know, efficiently? Are you able to sell scalably? Um, and I think like sometimes we need to be like aware of our biases and and uh, the impact that like marquee logos can have on our decision making. But it sounds like you, well, I can't tell if you think it's like a rational bias or not. I mean, in some sense you could call all pattern matching <laughs> biases. But do yeah. you really think you think it would be rational to, um, to to sort of like be less enamored with um, tech forward customers that than you actually are? So, I think we need to ask ourselves and probe on like under what circumstances might enterprises move quickly. Um, a great example of this is like a company called Afresh, which was one of the companies that did use RL to like disrupt an industry uh, at that time that like so many companies were trying to do the same thing, but like didn't have as much insight into like what was happening within an industry. Uh, so they offer uh, uh, tech solutions, including for things like inventory management and forecasting to companies in the grocery space. Now, you might think that like 
grocery is going to be like a super, you know, outdated, uh, slow moving industry. And therefore that like selling into uh, grocery chains would be like long and tedious um, and perhaps like not very scalable. Uh, but, you know, at the time, like a lot of like grocery stores were responding to and or like otherwise just terrified by like the acquisition of Whole Foods by Amazon. Uh, this was, you know, then proceeded by like the pandemic, which certainly put a lot of stress on their online um, and kind of like multi-channel uh, delivery and, and uh, e-commerce capabilities. Um, and so like there were these exogenous shocks which made uh what might have been like slow moving market participants move a lot faster um and i think like those are the phenomena that we're sometimes blind to because we just hear like grocery or healthcare or like manufacturing and think slow uh rather than thinking like what would it take for the participants in that sector to move fast mm-hmm. That makes sense. Okay, here's another um, here's another point that you made on Twitter that I was contemplating, and I actually don't think I have a strong point of view on this, although I really should, given the company that I'm running. But you know, you mentioned like a lot of I think VCs have been saying that you expect um, you know the point solution um, ML ops to like you know space to to consolidate, and I guess like one thing that's interesting about that is that. Um, I think you've invested in some some MLOps tools. So do you sort of expect them to sort of like expand in scope and like eat the other companies? Like, is that something that you need to bet on when you invest in them? Or would you be sort of happy to see them get bought by um, by other tools? Or how do you think about investment then in an MLOps um, tools company with that worldview? That's my practical question. And then I guess the other thing that I observe is that it doesn't necessarily seem like developer tools in general is um, consolidating. So I think I might even agree with you, but the, but I wonder um, how you sort of pattern match that against um, developer tools or even maybe like the data stack. I don't know. Do you think that the data stack is also consolidating or, or what's going on there? Sorry, I just dumped a whole bunch of different questions on you, but <laughs> would love no, to hear your I thoughts. Mean, those, the, those, are, those are great questions. Um, so, so I do think that like in general, most... Uh, technical tools and platforms will go through like phases of consolidation and like decoupling or you know as as people love to say today like bundling and unbundling right right um it, i think it's just the nature of like point solutions versus end-to-end platforms like you have a bunch of point solutions they're difficult to maintain they may be challenging to integrate uh you then kind of like bias towards like end-to-end platforms. Uh, you adopt an end-to-end platform. It doesn't like address a certain edge case or like a use case that you're experiencing. So you buy a new tool for like that edge case and said, you know, unbundling happens. And I think like the pendulum will always swing back and forth between like bundling and unbundling for, for that reason or like coupling and decoupling for that reason. Um, To be clear, like as a former buyer, I don't think that like point solutions or end-to-end platforms are like the best 
solutions like for a company. I think like there's space in the middle where uh, you have a product that can solve a few adjacent uh, problems. And so that's typically like what I look for when I invest. I want to make sure that like the company in which I'm investing is solving an urgent and often like a point problem. They're, they're, they're solving an urgent and specific problem. Um, however, I typically also want to see that like the founder has a hypothesis about like how uh, they would expand into adjacent problem areas. Um, so it, it's not that I think solving point problems is is bad, but I do think like given the the uh, pendulum of uh, coupling and decoupling, like having some hypotheses about like the areas uh, that you can expand into becomes critical. Um, it's interesting to consider why this may or may not happen in the world of like developer tools. Um, I'd argue that like you still see consolidation. However, the consolidation tends to happen uh, across like layers of the stack um, versus uh, across the workflow. Interesting. What do you, um, so tell you, me? Tell me what do you what are you mad? What are you thinking of there? Things like you know, serverless, um, where uh, you're no longer like reasoning about like resources and and config. Um, that might not be impacting like other parts of your developer workflow. Like that might not be you know eating into uh, your like based development workflows or your like testing processes and things like that um but it is eating into you know how you think about like managing uh, vms or containers um it is uh possibly like eating into how you think about uh working with like cloud vendors and and uh, deciding upon like underlying hardware and things like that. So, so it might be the case that like um, in software development, like we've seen we've seen companies or we've seen like vendors solve specific problems, but solve those like all the way down the stack. Um, I haven't really thought about that as deeply. Um, but I think, you know, it's a worthwhile question to ask. I would say that like one of the big differences though that I see and that we of course need to be mindful of is that like there are far more developers than there are uh, data practitioners. Um, and so when you're trying to answer the question, like how does this thing get big? Um, those building developer tools can arguably like solve a specific problem for uh, a larger number of people versus uh, data teams when you're trying to answer this question of like, how does this get big? Um, you could potentially get stumped just by like the number of people for whom a tool is actually applicable. And is that what gives you the intuition that we're in a moment of bundling, that there's just all these kind of point solutions that you feel like kind of can't survive on their own, just given the size of the 
the market that they're in? Yeah. So, so I mean, I think it's a combination of things. Um, I think on one hand, I see like a lot of the, the slivers are getting tinier. Um, you know, you, you start to see things like model deployment solutions for uh, like computer vision um, and perhaps, you know, some subset of like computer vision architectures um, where you might think to yourself like, okay, I understand why the existing tools are maybe not like optimal for that specific use case, but that's really narrow. And like, to my point about thinking about like these orthogonal problems, like it's unclear like how you go from that to something meatier. Um, so that's one phenomena that I observe. I think the other is just that like practitioners are really, really struggling to, to stitch things together. Uh, the way a friend put it to me about like a year ago, he basically said, he feels like, you know, vendors are handing him a steering wheel and an engine and a dashboard and, you know, a chassis and saying like, build a fast, safe car. Yeah. Um, and those components might not even fit together. And there's no instruction manual. Um, and, you know, it's, it's easy to like cast shade on uh you know the startups that are that are like building these these tools and platforms but i think one of the things that is more challenging in the mli space than even like you know, data and analytics is that like a lot of the a lot of the ml engineering uh and ml development workflows are, are really heterogeneous now so if you're a vendor and you're trying to think about like okay uh, with whom should I partner? With whom should I integrate? Like, do I spend time on supporting this integration? It, it's tougher to make those decisions when, uh, like, practices and workflows are are so fragmented and heterogeneous. So, so I do think that uh, creating like more of a cohesive ecosystem has been difficult. Not because like vendors are dumb, but uh, because there's just a lot going on. I think the other challenge maybe is that when there's so many like different technologies that people want to like integrate into what they're doing, because there's so much exciting research and like things that, you know, come along, you know, based on like different frameworks and, and so on. It's hard to imagine like an end-to-end -end system that would actually be able to absorb like every possible, you know, like model architecture, like immediately, um, as fast as companies like want to actually use it. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I have been thinking about this in the context of LLMs, like, uh, we don't yet know how the uh, consumers or like users of, of pre-trained models are going to interact with those who who create the pre-trained models. Like, will they be doing their own fine tuning? Uh, will they be doing their own uh, prompt engineering? Will they just be interacting with the LLM uh, via API? And without like insight into those interaction models, it's really hard to think about like building the right set of tools. It's also unclear to me if like the adoption of uh, LLMs would actually imply that we need a new set of tools, both for you know, model development and uh, deployment and management and production. Uh, 
So you know, I, have, I have a lot of empathy for people who are building ML tools and platforms because like it's a constantly moving target. Um, and yet, you know, there's the expectation that you know, you're able to uh, support like heterogeneity in all regards, like all regards, like uh, whether it's the the model architecture, the data type, or like the hardware backend, or the team structure, or the user skill set. Like, there's so much that is different from like org to org. So, so I think building great tools is is really challenging right now. I guess that's a good segue to a question I was going to ask you. When when you look at LLMs, do you have an intuition on if a new set of tools are needed to um, to make these functional? Yeah. So, so I mean, I think like one of the bigger questions that I have is again, like on how the, uh, how the consumers of LLMs or how the users of LLMs will actually interact with those LLMs and more specifically, um, will, uh, who will own fine tuning. Um, I I, I imagine that like there are certain challenges that will need to be addressed both with regards to like how we collaborate on the development of LLMs, but also how we think about like the impact of iterations on LLMs. So for example, you know, if OpenAI uh, wants to uh, retrain one of their, their models or like otherwise tweak the architecture, how do they evaluate the impact of that change on all of the people who are interfacing with uh, the GPT-3 um, API or yeah. with any of their other products? Um, I think a lot of the tools that were built for model development and deployment today kind of assumed that the people who were developing models would be the same set of people, or at least like the within the same corporate umbrella um, as those who are uh, deploying and managing models in production. And if LLMs drive a shift where in those who are developing models and those who are deploying and building applications around models are two completely separate parties, then some of the tools that we have today might be ill-suited for that context. Do you think we're headed towards a world like that, where there's like a small number of companies generating foundational models, and then mostly what other companies are doing is fine tuning them or or doing some kind of like prompt engineering to get good results out of them? So, so here we're getting a little bit into the like technical nitty gritty, but like my impression from tracking like the research community so far has been that all though LLMs are great for like what we typically think of as like unstructured data, um, primarily like images, text, video, et cetera, audio too. Um, uh, they have not like outperformed like gradient boosting or like more traditional methods on structured data sets, including like tabular and time series data. Although there, there, there's some work on like time series that I think is, is pretty compelling. Um, this is one of those areas where I feel like the research community just completely underestimates how many businesses operate on you know, structured data. Um, while it's possible that 
adoption of LLMs will drive like this new uh, interaction model or like new market model wherein, you know, some companies build these large foundation models and others interact with those. Um, I don't see like gradient boosting or, or like more classical approaches uh, going anywhere um, uh, because I don't see structured data going anywhere. Uh -huh. um, arguably, like structured data powers many of the most critical uh, use cases within organizations, like ranging from you know, search and recommendation engines to like fraud detection. Um, and, you know, I think it would be a tragedy to, to kind of like neglect the needs of those who are you know, using, uh, uh, I don't want to say like simpler approaches, but, but, you know, certainly simpler approaches and, uh, more complex approaches, but, but using architectures that are not, uh, perhaps like attention-based, um, when working with like the, the specific data sets. Interesting. Do you have an opinion on um, how to say this? I feel like many investors, especially, but I think like many smart people looking at the space of you know ML and data, they think, "Wow, like you know, this is gonna um, kind of commoditize. Like you know, this is gonna get like you know, tools are gonna make this easier. Like you know, less companies are gonna want to do this internally and spend money on expensive resources." But I guess when I look at what companies actually do is it seems like they spend more and more and even like, you know, like kind of push up the salaries and have this like fight for, um, you know, scarce specific talent. So I guess which way do you sort of predict things are going? Like, do you think like 10 years down the road, um, you know, ML salaries like go up or do they or do they go down? Maybe it's a more concrete way of putting that. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a great question. I'd probably expect that, like, the variance would increase. Um, so my guess is that, like, there are certain applications that may be commoditized or at least that may be commoditized for some subset of the market. Um while others continue to uh, be pursued in-house. Like search is perhaps like a very interesting example. Um, for some businesses, they may be like more than happy uh, to rely upon like a vendor uh, to provide you know, semantic or like vector-based search capabilities. Um, uh, while you know search may have an impact on their bottom line perhaps it's not like uh the most critical or like uh most impactful thing to their business but rather like just a capability that they have um uh, so this is not to say that like slack actually like uses a a uh uh like vendor or should use a vendor but like as far as I can tell, like Slack doesn't really like monetize on search. Um, you'd contrast that, however, with like an e-commerce business um, or something you know, like Google, where their ability to deliver like the highest quality search results and their ability to like improve search um, uh, just marginally could 
be a huge impact on revenue. And those companies are probably likely to um, develop, you know, their their own models. Uh, so, so I think we'll see that some companies do uh, their own model development. Uh, some 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 use cases are not commoditized, and you know, those companies. Uh, for those use cases, you see very high ML salaries. Um, but then, you know, perhaps like for others, like you're really just a software engineer who knows like a little bit about ML and can interface uh, with some of these models like through APIs um, and can... Uh, a reason about like the output of of you know, experiments and and uh, behavior that you might see in production. I guess in that vein, and you sort of alluded to this earlier a little bit. Like, what do you think about all these sort of like low code and no code interfaces into um, you know into exploring data, building ML models? I mean, I guess I think you mentioned earlier that you think that's like generally like a really exciting trend. So, I, I my 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 like opinions on this this uh, category um, are pretty nuanced. Uh, so I was thinking about like where to start. Okay. Um, yeah. Generally speaking, like I'm very skeptical of like no code, low code solutions. I find that like many of these tools, no matter like what the sector, what the use case. Um, they end up like shifting the burden of work, not necessarily like uh, removing that burden or even lightening that burden. So a great example is like self-service analytics. Like my own belief is that in general, like most self-service analytics tools uh, don't actually like uh, reduce the burden uh, that like the data team or analytics team bears, um, but rather like, uh, shift the work of the data team from building analytics products to like debugging, explaining, or fixing analytics products. And I think like the same can be true in the ML space. Why I'm excited about like some of these tools in the ML space is that I actually think that in ML, failing fast is really critical. Um, and you know some of these tools that enable users to like prototype ML-driven solutions might help them better understand like is this going to work? What additional investments do I need? Um, uh, what do my users expect from the system uh, before they make a decision to invest further? So, so it enables that kind of like quick prototyping, learning, and and failing fast. The other thing that I feel quite strongly about is that we need to explore ways to uh, kind of like decouple model development and ML-driven app development. Uh, whenever I talk to companies about like their ML architectures or their ML stack, it becomes so obvious that like ML is just this one tiny component in a much larger app architecture where uh, you know, the prediction service might be connecting with other databases or stream processing systems or you know, other microservices, uh, tools for like 
authorization and so on and so forth. And so like, I think it's really important to be able to like build applications around a prediction service while independently like iterating on the model that powers that prediction service. And so I am somewhat long on tools that enable engineers to prototype ML-driven systems so that they can build those application architectures. And then once they have a better understanding of kind of the full system requirements, including some of the latency associated with things like moving data around, uh, they can kind of pass off a fuller spec uh, to a data scientist who will iterate on the model and model architecture armed with the knowledge that like these are the attributes that we need um, in order uh, to make this project successful. That makes sense. Okay, another question. Um, do you, when you invest in a company that is like providing like some kind of like ML or data service, does it cross your mind? Like what if AWS does that or like, you know, GCP or Azure? Like, is that an important thing to consider, do you think? Or is that irrelevant? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's, I, I, I smile because I feel like this question... It, it comes up somewhere between like one to five times a week, um, given the areas that Amplify invests in, you know, where we're primarily focused on on data and ML tools and platforms, enterprise infrastructure and developer tools. Like we're constantly fielding this question of like, what if, you know, AWS or, or GCP or Azure does this? Um, won't, you know, that company won't like that market, et cetera, get crushed? Um, in the past, you know, what I've told people is that, like, I have found that startups tend to be better at building developer experiences. Like, anecdotally, this is just something that we observe. People complain a lot about, like, the experience of using AWS tools, the experience of using things like SageMaker. Um, and I've thought a little bit more about, like, why that's the case. I think generally speaking like the cloud vendors need to develop for their uh, most spendy <laughs> customers mm. like they're their like highest paying customers um and their highest paying customers tend to be enterprises shockingly mm. um and as such like they're developing for an enterprise user who probably has like fairly strict privacy security requirements um, who may have like a very distinct way of like organizing their teams, um, who may be bringing in a persona with, like a specific skill set uh, into like data science or ML roles. Um, so if I had to present a hypothesis about like why they haven't been able to compete on developer experiences, I think it's because uh, often they are creating uh, tools and platforms for a developer who is not as representative of the rest of the market. Um, but it, to be honest, like with the passage of time, I've just seen enough examples of companies that have been able to outcompete the cloud vendors where like, I just don't worry about it that much anymore. Um, have you ever seen anyone get, get crushed? Crushed. Has that happened in, in your career? No, I, not, I mean... I'm sure it has, but it's hard for me to think of an example. Whereas like, it's easy to think of 
many, many examples of companies that were not crushed um, by the cloud vendors. Um, you know, if anything, I think like uh, sometimes we see that like startups get uh, they they sell too soon. <laughs> Yeah. Like the, the 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 way in which you know the cloud vendors outcompete them is putting you know some juicy acquisition offer in front of them, and mm -hmm. then they don't have to compete. So so like that that's the only example that I could see or think of like off the top of my head of like you know the cloud vendors like crushing a potential competitor like they crush it with their dollars. <laughs> <laughs> they suffocate companies with their acquisition offers. R and D through M and A. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you? So I saw an interview or a, a conversation that you had with um, Andrew Ng, and I thought you had an interesting point that, you know, academic benchmarks, you know, they they often don't really reflect industry use cases. But you're kind of pointing out that industry, you know, has some some share of the blame for this. Uh, could you say more on that topic? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I. I am really grateful to Andrew for actually like drawing my attention to this issue. I think like we often think about like uh, the gap between like research and industry, but we don't as often think about like the gap between like industry and uh, research. And so you know, Andrew and I had been talking about this challenge of, of like structured data versus unstructured data. And I think I said to him like, what I see in industry is that most ML teams are working with tabular and time series data. Uh, what I see in the research community is that like most researchers are building new model architectures for unstructured data. And so like there's a big mismatch between uh, what like model architectures people in industry need given the data that is available to them as well as like given the types of problems that they're trying to solve and like the research that's becoming available. Now he pointed out to me, and this is something that I hadn't really thought about before, um, researchers have access to unstructured data. They have access to things like ImageNet. They don't have access to like uh, high volumes of data on user sessions or you know logs, metrics, and events. And like the data sets that like tend to be like the lifeblood of most companies. Um, and it is very difficult to like innovate on, you know, AI techniques for uh, data sets to which you have zero access. Um, so, you know, I think it's easy to like point at research and be like, ah, there's such a big gap between like what they're building and what we need. Um, but I think we also need to be mindful of like what the research community can do given the resources that they have available to them. I've seen like a couple of efforts by uh, a few organizations to like open source their data sets, but it's tough because like uh, oftentimes the most valuable data sets are like the most sensitive ones. Like what company wants to share their like click through data that would uh, probably like reveal, you know, the, the, the state of their business, uh, some of the experiments that they're running and so on and so forth. Well, there's also not a lot of upside. I mean, I remember the Netflix contest was like such a popular, awesome thing, got so many people involved, you know, so much attention and research to Netflix, still like a seminal data set, right? But they didn't do a second one because they felt like 
you know, there were user privacy issues that um, they couldn't get around to release it. Or I don't know if you remember when AOL released their, um, you know, a, a subset of their query logs. It was so exciting to actually have that. You know, I was in research at the time and I was like, this is data set is like gold. And then like the next day they fired the person that released it and their boss, I think their boss's boss, right? Because, you know, they were somehow personally identifying information and that. So, I, you know, it's hard to see like a lot of upside, you know, for um, corporations, even if they were sort of neutral on the the impact of, on the, on the sort of like, you know, company secrets IP issue. Yeah. Yeah. Now, one of the things that I have seen that has been very encouraging is like, more and more kind of interview studies or like meta-analyses coming out of the like research community um, where you know, it's it's clear that like the uh, researchers are interested in better understanding the problems that practitioners face in industry. Um, you know, one critique that I've had of those studies in the past is that like uh, the authors tend to interview um people to whom they have immediate access, which means that they often interview practitioners at like some of their like funding organizations, uh, the, the organizations that are sponsoring their labs, uh, which means that they tend to bias more towards like larger enterprises or, or like uh, you know, the, the, the thing companies. So, so like they're interviewing people at you know, Facebook, Apple, Tesla on their like data and about tools, platforms, practices, and then drawing conclusions about like all of industry. Um, but I think that, you know, recently I've seen a couple of, of studies come out where there's been a more focused effort to get a uh, more like random um, or at least, you know, more diverse sample of practitioners from like both uh, smaller startups, more traditional uh, companies, bigger tech companies, et cetera, to, to really better understand like both the similarities and differences between how they approach model development and deployment. Um, and I hope that, you know, that continues. Do you have a study that's, that's top of mind that you could point us to? Uh, yeah. So uh, Shreya Shankar would actually be uh, yeah. a I university associate. Totally. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I mean, I, I was, uh, really thrilled because like Shrey actually reached out to us and said like, Hey, can you connect us to people, um, at the different types of companies? Like I've, I've, I've got connections to people at, you know, Instagram, Facebook, uh, Apple, et cetera, et cetera. But like, I, I want to talk to people, um, at you know, mid-market companies or like early stage startups and B2B companies and like better understand some of the nuances of, of their workflows. And what was the name of the paper? I think I just saw it. Operationalizing Machine Learning and Interview Study. Nice. Thank you. Yeah, that, I yeah. agree. That was an excellent, uh, excellent paper. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that I had said, I, I like, you know, sent uh, Shreya a text message after reading through it. The other thing that I really appreciated about the interview study was that she didn't like cherry pick the insights that were most likely to drive like interesting research questions or solutions. I think she took like a really uh, genuine and unbiased approach to thinking about like, what are the problems that people are talking about? 
Um, and what are the ways in which they're, they're solving them? And, you know, let's highlight that, like, there are a bunch of problems that people are just solving and in, in uh, practical, albeit like hacky ways, but ways that like they're content with. So I, I thought I thought it was a very honest study. Totally. I totally agree. Well, I guess if we are possibly headed towards another bubble in, in machine learning, or machine intelligence, I guess as you sometimes call it. Um, do you have any advice for a startup founder like me or maybe like an ML practitioner, which is like most of our audience? Like, I mean, having gone through like another bubble, um, how would you how would you think about it? What would you do if, if you if you sort of start to and I think we are already seeing bubble esque um behavior. What uh, <laughs> what are the lessons? Yeah, I mean, I think the most critical lesson that like I saw learned like the last time around was like focus on your users or like focus on the like strategic problems that that you're trying to solve and really really understand if and why uh ML is the best tool to solve that problem um I think it's critical to think about like machine learning as a very important tool in our toolkit, but one of several tools. Like I, I was catching up with a friend a couple of weeks ago and she had mentioned to me that like the way in which she prioritizes ML projects is um, through you know regular conversations with uh, their product leadership and engineering leadership and you know, her representing ML leadership about like the product roadmap, about like the user behaviors that they're trying to unlock. And then thinking about like whether, you know, ML or traditional software development approaches are like a better tool for achieving those things. And I think like as long as we continue to think about ML as a tool to solve problems, um, and as long as we have the tools that enable us to better understand if ML is solving those problems um, and how to improve upon you know, its ability to solve those problems, then you know, ML can be a super powerful tool and one that we learn to wield in more powerful ways too. But you know, I feel almost like a broken record saying this given you know, the, the lessons learned in the past like if we treat ml like a silver bullet if we treat it you know, like a hammer looking for a nail like that was the pattern that i think led to to failure um you know don't think about like what ml can do for you think about like what you can do for your country and if ml is the right <laughs> way to do that i guess um, I think that's, you know, the, 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 the lesson that we learned and I hope it's the lesson that, you know, we will carry forth. I love it. Um, <laughs> we always end with two open-ended questions. Um, and the first of the two is if you had extra time, um, what's something that you'd like to spend more time researching or put another way, what's an underrated topic in data or, or machine learning? Oh man, that one is like 
very easy for me, like programming languages. Ooh. I would love to spend more time like learning about like programming languages. Like I am definitely not convinced that like Python is the right interface for data science or or that you know SQL is the right interface for analytics work. But I would really love to learn more about like programming language design so that I could better diagnose like if and why uh, Python and SQL are the wrong tools and how one might go about like building a better PL interface for data scientists, ML engineers, and analysts. Okay, a question that I didn't ask because I yeah. thought it was a little weird or, or maybe nosy is why you're asking on Twitter if you, anyone knew any female um, Rust developers. Because I, I will say yeah. Rust comes up just a shocking amount on this podcast. <laughs> and, I, and I was wondering, like, what's driving the interest in Rust? And then if there was some reason behind looking for a female Rust developer, and if you actually um, found one. Yeah, yeah. Um, so full transparency. And I think I think like I maybe put some of this on on Twitter, too. <laughs> um, so so like quick background is that, you know, certainly earlier in my career, I felt like oftentimes like I wasn't getting invited to like the same set of events, et cetera, as some of my male peers. And therefore, like I wasn't getting exposure to like the same set of conversations, maybe even the same like opportunities to like potentially see deals and things like that. So like I feel pretty strongly that like we need to have like women in the room when we host events to ensure that like they're getting exposed to like the same set of opportunities that like we're not doing things to like hamper their their progress in the industries in which they they operate um we were hosting a rust developer dinner and you know looked at the guest list and like there weren't that many women and uh you know felt like we could do better so thus the origins of my question i see um why rust um i wish i see i wish i spent more time studying programming languages so i could like better understand like why people are are you know shifting from like c plus plus to rust um luca palmieri uh who i believe is now at aws actually has like a great blog post on why rust might be a more appropriate like backend uh, for Python libraries that often have C++ um, backends, you know, things like Pandas, where like we experience it as Python, um, but in fact, like uh, it has a C++ backend. Um, I've heard that like Rust is more accessible than C++ and therefore it could perhaps like invite more data practitioners uh, to actually like contribute to some of the, those projects. Um, but I don't know enough to to really say like why Rust is so magical um, other than, you know, a lot of smart people apparently like Linus Torvald to uh, believe it is. So <laughs> if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for us. I don't know. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Well, my final um, question for you is um, when you look at the, the sort of ML workflow today, kind of going from like, you know, research to deploy it into production. Where do you see the biggest bottlenecks or maybe where do you see the most surprising bottlenecks for, you know, your portfolio companies? Yeah. So I generally think that like the, there, 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 there are 
two bottlenecks that I would call attention to. Um, actually, three. Sorry, I'm being kind of indecisive here. Um, one pattern that I've observed with ML is that it's like we often iterate on ML-driven uh, applications or ML-driven features uh, more frequently than we iterate on like more traditional software features. So, so uh, to give an example, like we may iterate on a pricing algorithm like far more frequently than we would iterate on a like navigation panel or an onboarding flow or something like that. Um, you know, earlier I was talking about like understanding how ML can solve like user and company problems. I don't really think we have enough insight into the way in which model performance correlates with uh, behavioral data or like you no know, product engagement uh, to iterate super effectively on on models. And I think like that has been a limitation and one that you know could have like nefarious effects in in the future. Um, another big challenge that I see, and I alluded to this before, is like the challenge of building software applications around a prediction service or around a model. I think in the past, people might have talked about this as like a model deployment problem. The problem isn't like, you know, containerizing your your model and, and like uh, implementing a prediction service in production. I think like that has gotten significantly easier. Uh, the problem is like connecting to like five different databases, each which have like different sets of like ACID guarantees, latency uh, profiles, uh, also connecting to like a UI service, uh, potentially like connecting to other, you know, application services. So, so like the problem is like the software development, like what you've got is a trained model, but like now you actually have to build a software application. And I don't think we have great tools to like facilitate that process either for uh, ML engineers or for software engineers. Um, and then uh, around the same space, I also think that like the transition from like research to production um, uh, can still and back can still be challenging. So perhaps like what a company wants to do uh, upon seeing an issue associated with the model in production is actually you know, see the experiment runs associated with that model so that they might get more insight into like what is now happening in that production environment. Like that shouldn't be difficult to do. Um, uh, but in the past, I think we really uh, developed tools either for model development or for like ML ops. And we're starting to see some of the like pain points that arise when like those sets of tools are not you know, coupled together. Uh -huh. hmm, cool. Yeah, that all um, that all definitely resonates with me. <laughs> Lest I sound too cynical, like I, I am really optimistic about like the the future of ML. Um, I think we just need to do it like in a sane and rational way, and be mindful of like what we're trying to accomplish here instead of. Uh, they're just focusing on like flashy press releases and uh, cool demos. I was thinking as you're talking, you were talking about like um, like the hype cycle on like large language models and stuff. Like I was thinking like 
VCs probably feel the hype cycle like the fastest because like I'm like, man, we've like basically solved the Turing test and like no one cares. Like my parents like are like, what even is this? You know, and it's like, come on, this is like awesome. Like look at it. But I think like, you know, every investor like knows about like stable diffusion, but I don't think like, I, I mean, I even come across like chief, you know, chief data officers at like Fortune 500 companies that are like, what's like stable diffusion? It's like, come on, you should like, she should know about this, but anyway. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, but I think like there's this awareness though of like this is where the hard work starts. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Um, like, great. We're able to like uh, generate like beautiful like artistic renderings based on like textual prompts. Okay, how do we generate like photos? that are you know equivalent to that which a professional photographer would produce because like that's what it's going to take to get like you know a getty images or like Flickr to to adopt you know something like staple diffusion uh how do we make like automated rotoscoping so good that like a uh, you know video editor like doesn't need to correct the mask at all because, you know, that's what it's going to take for, like, Runway 2 to compete with, like, some of the more traditional video editors. Uh, you know, I, I saw through Runway that, like, the research is not good enough. Like, they've had to do, like, a lot of, like, engineering as well as their own research in order to, like, operationalize some of these things. Yeah. And, yeah. and so, like, I, I am... Op so optimistic about like the potential of the technologies but like i also am realistic that like reining them in and actually like leveraging these technologies to like do good in the world or to like build you know great products um is hard uh, short anecdote uh but uh I've been talking to you know, a founder who is working on like brain computer interfaces and actually like developed you know this this like uh, technology where like effectively like it's able to read minds. Um, it what like you had to put on you know some right. big like helmet thing, but like once the helmet was on, it could kind of transcribe thoughts, um, and they were able to get it to like work. Um, now the founder like subsequently uh like shifted focus to like the gaming space uh doing more work with like haptic interfaces and i was asking him like why didn't you pursue you know the mind reading tech further and he said to me like we couldn't find any great use cases oh, man. and like isn't that crazy but i think like this is this is tech like sometimes you can do absolutely remarkable things with technology um but it doesn't matter like it doesn't matter unless you figure out like uh, how to appeal to people and get them to use it and like how to align that technology with an important set of problems um so like i think that's that's is the thing as VC is we need to like continue to remind ourselves because like I mean tech is not easy <laughs> tech is not easy but like people are not easy either like both are really hard um 
And like unlocking new sets of technologies often means that like we're granted, you know, the opportunity to solve like really hard human problems. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I guess TLDR, you know, if if uh, if uh, GPT-3 starts reading minds, like <laughs> maybe we'll be able to find some some applications for it. But we'll see. Thanks so much, Sarah. That was, that was super fun. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Bye. If you're enjoying these interviews and you want to learn more, please click on the link to the show notes in the description where you can find links to all the papers that are mentioned, supplemental material, and a transcription that we work really hard to produce. So check it out.